Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. Today we continue the series of eight visions in the book of Zechariah with Zechariah chapter 2. This is our third vision, just to keep you posted. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares Yahweh, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares Yahweh. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus said Yahweh of hosts after his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before Yahweh, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. So here in the series of eight night visions that Yahweh gives to Zechariah his prophet in roughly the year 520 BC, we get vision number three. And this vision is gospel, very much gospel. It's got to be unpacked maybe to see it, but it really is. So let's take a look. First, I lifted up my eyes and saw the, the common formula that introduces most of these eight visions, but not all. A man with a measuring line. We're not told who the man is. The, the man in that sense, not relevant, um, who his identity would be a servant of God of some kind. He's going to measure the city of Jerusalem. And that measurement is a sign, again, as we've talked about before, a sign of God's protection, that he knows something's dimensions is a symbol of his great love and care for that thing. The more intimately you know something, the more value it has to you and the more willing you would be to protect it, as you think even of your own life and the things that you have. So that's the normal pattern of this measuring line kind of idea in prophetic literature and scripture, both in the Old Testament and in Revelation. But this one takes a shift, a fairly drastic shift. So yes, it should be for God's protection, but what happens? So this is Jesus, the angel who talked with me, came forward. So Jesus is standing by Zechariah as he is seeing this. Another angel, another messenger comes from the Lord, and he speaks to Jesus, instructing Jesus to go and cut off that man. Right? Run, say to that young man, get to him before he gets to Jerusalem because he doesn't need to do it. He doesn't even have to measure the city because the city will be without walls. 
Now, a family conversation point to kind of get you wrapping your mind around this. Why did ancient cities have walls? What was the purpose? The primary purpose was for protection, for defense, that if an enemy were trying to attack, they got to get over the wall or they got to break through the wall. It, it helps protect your people. It also prevents thieves uh, coming into your community from outside. They can't sneak in at night. They'd have to try and get through the gate during the daytime. And it prevents wild animals, protection from beasts as well, who would maybe sneak into your town and try to harm someone in the middle of the night. Ancient cities had such a factor, and there are probably places in the world that that is still the case, but not as commonly as it certainly used to be. There's more to this now. I mean, that's the starting point. Again, God's protection for his people, that Jerusalem would have this grand wall that cannot be destroyed. God is protecting them. But look, it doesn't have walls. There's too many people for it to have walls. they, They couldn't build enough wall for this place. The multitude of people, the multitude of livestock, this is a symbol of God's provision. This is a symbol of God restoring, redeeming, bringing his people back from their time in captivity and in exile and helping them rebuild, restoring them to what they once were as a nation, as a people. But it continues. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares Yahweh. So it's not that she'll be defenseless. She is going to be so numerous she can't be counted, very similar to the promises of the Old Testament that Yahweh made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and following, that his offspring would be so numerous they could not be counted, whether sand on the seashore, stars in the sky, etc. But God is going to put a wall of fire all around her. Fire is often a symbol in the Old Testament of God's presence, And that's certainly going to be the case here. I will be the glory in her midst, so the Lord is with his people. But also, uh, don't miss out on the 2 Kings chapter 6 connection here. When an army has come down to capture Elisha, the prophet of God, and his servant is terrified by this, and Elisha prays to the Lord that the Lord would open the eyes of the servant so that he could see. And the Lord opens his eyes, And all of a sudden he sees the the mountainside filled with chariots of fire. So the Lord's army, the Lord fighting for his people, is part of this picture. I will be the glory in her midst. This is what the purpose was for the tabernacle and eventually the temple. God dwelling in the midst of his people, right there, present with them. His word given to them the altar for sacrifice that they could receive forgiveness of sins. Now God promising to be in her midst again. This has not been the case since they've been exiled in Babylon over the last 70 years, but it will be so again. Now all of that's well and good, but it actually has a greater meaning that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Consider this also in regards to the new heaven, the new earth, to the new Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21, which is again a reference to the church herself. It's you and me, and that God will be our wall of fire all around. He will protect, he will defend, and he will be the glory of his people in the midst of them. Paradise isn't paradise because it's without sin. Paradise isn't paradise because it's going to be this wonderful place and we'll be happy all the time. 
Paradise is paradise because we'll be with Jesus. That's the emphasis. It's not, not that the other things are wrong. It'll be without sin. And we will be happy and joyful in the presence of God. But the primary factor is we're with Christ. He is our light. He is also our glory. All right, so this is all gospel. Yahweh returns. Yahweh protects. Yahweh provides. And we can see it again in Christ, taking it further into the future as we look to Christ's return and to our home with him forever. Now, our second paragraph, up, up, flee from the land of the north. I, I Notice verse 6 and 13's connection. He tells the people, up, up, and then in verse 13, he himself has gotten up. Don't miss that. But in verse 6 here, flee from the land of the north. The land of the north is a reference to the location, the direction from which the attackers of Jerusalem tend to come. And in other prophetic writings, God has specified that their destruction would come from the north. So even though if you were to look at a map, technically Babylon is to the east. Okay, that's fine. It's not the picture. The enemy came from the north. So when they dragged them off, they dragged them off to the north. And then eventually they had to turn east. But it's the land of the north, Babylon. Come back return from there, come out of exile. And the Jews truly did come out of exile in Babylon in waves. There were some who came out fairly early, but there were others who would come out later and join them. So this is why, again, verse 7, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So you're in Babylon, you're dwelling there. Leave there, come to Zion, return home. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the place where the temple was, the capital of God's nation, his kingdom. The four winds of the earth have scattered them abroad. This is again God's judgment, having scattered them. He has scattered them to the nations, but now he's calling them home. The idea of there being four winds, again, think of creation. The number four is a symbol for creation, so all the winds of the heavens that the Lord has used. Verse 8 Thus says Yahweh, after his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. His glory, the glory of God, his holiness, his perfection, sent me to the nations who plundered you. Interestingly enough, who is the me in this text? It's a little unspecified, isn't it? You might notice in the ESV that our quotation marks ended at verse 5 and started up again at verse 9. I have no idea why, to be quite honest, the ESV did that. Uh, It makes it look as though perhaps this would be Zechariah speaking. Commentators note that there are a lot of ways to look at verse 8 here. Uh, The way that I'm going to go with, for the sake of the podcast, is to look at it in the light of Zechariah. After his glory, so after the return of the Jews from their their time in exile, that God has called Zechariah, sent me to the nations. So Zechariah has been called as God's prophet, and he's even been sent to the nations who plundered them. Thus, for example, Babylon. To warn them, to caution them also. The phrase, he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. If you're looking for just a 
a question to keep your kids engaged and, and following along with the text. See if they can make sense of that statement. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So what is the apple of his eye? Who is the apple of his eye? Well, it's you. It's us. Right? So you can do an example, and you can come up with your own if you want, just off the top of my, my head here. Ah, there's the pun for you. Um, point to your head, but say to your children, I'm touching my cranium. If your children are little, this will work. They won't know what a cranium is. Um, and then they'll say, no, you're touching your head. But it's the picture here. Right? He who touches you is touching the apple of his eye, the, the, the thing of great value. Uh, before the Lord is the referent. I do know that apple of his eye ministries is a thing. Uh, the idea of the Jewish Christians seeking to reach back out to fellow Jews to teach them about Christ and his salvation for them. So the warning in verse 9, what this is about, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. So the reference then to the shaking of the hand is the destruction that it brings, because that's how they become plunder. The Jews can plunder the land, and so can others. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. So you will know Zechariah's prophecy is true once it has occurred. You will know that he has been sent by God once this has come to pass. This is something God says about his prophets in general. If you want to test the words of a prophet, simply see if they come true or not. If they come true, he is from Yahweh. If they do not come true, he is not from Yahweh. Micaiah spoke that way uh, when he was summoned before the king of Israel and the king of Judah. He prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 22 against King Ahab of Israel, saying that he would go to battle and die. Ahab had him locked away in a prison, saying that when he came back, they would let Micaiah out of jail. And Micaiah's response was essentially, if you come back... Yahweh has not spoken through me. Right? He's acknowledging that his prophecy is that Ahab's going to die. And if that doesn't come true, Micaiah is a false prophet and should be in prison. We never do learn from that text if Micaiah ever got out of jail. Anyway, as we keep going here, continuing on, so the people of God get to rejoice because their enemies have been defeated. God has struck down those who sought to oppress and those who sought to harm them. This is, again, reaching forward into the, our accounts of paradise as we think about the day of judgment, when all those who have sought to destroy the church, when all those have sought to harm and persecute you because of your faith in Christ, they'll be removed. They will no longer be able to cause you any suffering at all. And so we can likewise rejoice in this. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day. Again, a reference to the cross here, but also a reference forward again to paradise, that many nations will come to know Christ and that we will gather from every tribe, people, nation, language. We will gather in paradise to be with him forevermore. And we will be his people. So there's, again, a forward-looking prophecy in this, and it's all so rich in gospel. I will dwell in your midst. God will be with them. We can talk about the temple as they rebuild it. We can talk about then Jesus being that temple. As he tells the Pharisees, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. John 1, 
where we read such things as, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that's a reference. All those words, word, are a reference to Jesus Christ. And then when you come to 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. I will dwell in your midst. Jesus dwelling with men for, again, the purpose of his death and his resurrection to forgive and to save us. And when he dwells in your midst, you shall know that Yahweh has sent me. Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Uh, Choosing Jerusalem is very common language in the Old Testament, that he would choose a place to put his name, uh, a place of where people could gather, where they could hear his word, Again, where they could receive forgiveness uh, through the sacrifices on the altar, a place that would be holy and set apart for him. And then that his portion would be his people. So when the Israelites first inherit the promised land, it's divided into 12 lots for the 12 tribes. And each one is, they're given their inheritance. That land goes to that family tree and it becomes theirs it is their portion of the promised land god's portion of the promised land isn't the land it's the people it's you it's me we are his we are his treasured possession which is a phrase the old testament uses five times but first peter chapter 2 speaks similarly verse 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Fantastic connection back to this vision of Zechariah. Finally, verse 13, be silent all flesh before Yahweh, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. His holy dwelling at this place in time would be a reference to heaven. That he is coming down from his throne to visit his creation. And specifically for this vision, that's the idea of his judgment. He is coming to visit the enemies of God's people, and they only need to be silent. All flesh is an interesting phrase here. Both his people can be silent, but also the enemies, because there's nothing that they're the enemy can do. The Lord is going to judge them and they simply fall over. This is a picture of judgment we get in Revelation three times. I believe it's chapters 16, 19, and 20. Satan musters his forces, gathers his troops against Yahweh for a big final battle that we all know is Armageddon and it scares uh, the heebie-jeebies out of people. Read those texts. I mean, read them seriously. Go read them. They're not scary at all. The battle never happens. God wins. It's just over. Satan, with all his power, snuffed out, gone, done, finished. And so it is with the enemies of God here and now. They have no power against him. They're just done. 
The command to his own people to be silent reminds me of Exodus chapter 14 when they're about to cross through the Red Sea to the other side that Moses instructs the people. He said, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It's a great connection as well uh, to this text. We can be silent. On the day of judgment, we, we have nothing to say, for we are Christ, and he dwells in our midst. Our enemies cannot prosper. They cannot stand. We have a wall of fire and a multitude gathered from all nations around the throne of God.